thing of champagne left. And so I was like, and in that glass, no less, too. I know. And a little, in a little coupe. <laughs> coupe. Still. A little coupe, baby. Can I just ask you a question? You can ask me a question. Don't, can I ask you a question? How does it feel to know that you're going <laughs> to the magic castle? <laughs> I can't. I cannot. I like actually I I don't know what to expect. I don't know. You shouldn't expect anything. What magic <laughs> is about to happen to me? Also, I have to stop calling it the magic uh, you, city. <laughs> it's it's you're <laughs> you're graduating on city. from Magic Kingdom. It, it became Magic City. Eventually, we'll arrive at Magic Castle. <laughs> yes. I don't even know what Magic City is. Like I don't know where I'm pulling that from. But I am so it's excited. Be so good. Shout out to your oh friend. Oh my god, Molly, Molly, if in. you're listening, it, it was like, because we had joked about it on here and I was like, I don't know how, I don't know, <laughs> like Little Mermaid, I'm like, I don't know when, I don't know how, but I'm going to get you into how. the Magic Castle. And I truly had no plan on how to do that. But I was with Molly at that concert and I just like brought it up. I was like, oh God, I was like, you know, I went to the Magic Castle. I had such a great time. I'm Stu's going to be in town. I would love to take her. And like a magician herself, she just pulled out an entrance <laughs> card out of her bag. <laughs> and she was like, oh, I can get it. And I was like, oh, my God. I was losing my mind. So I'm so excited we're going to get to do that. It's exciting. It's great. I, I can't remember the last time, truly, that I've been around any sort of, like, magic. Baby. <laughs> You attend this podcast every Friday. What are you talking about? <laughs> I, know. I know. I know. That's true. I mean, we pull a lot of shit out of we our do. Oh, what's, the, what's the time? One fifty nine. <laughs> no, I said hats. I said Baby, hats. you said shit. <laughs> oh. Oh, oh my god! I'm sweating already. Oh wow, we're really on one now. <sighs> I haven't oh, even god. had one can of a drink. I'm fine. Okay, we're fine. I'm so excited. <laughs> we're gonna get to go. That you have no idea how happy that made me. That you're gonna get to. I am. We're gonna so have dinner thrilled. there too. I didn't have dinner last time, so the, the cuisine is expensive. <laughs> we're gonna. Is is the is the dinner like magic no. themed? Like, am I gonna have like a fork <laughs> for sixty dollars a plate? It should be magic themed. <laughs> <laughs> the prom rib should be doing a dance. <laughs> oh, it really yeah. should be. I was, be I was like guest. explaining that to Bryce because he's going to come with us too. So it's going to be you, me, Molly, Bryce. Um, so the four of us, and we're going to be there, like going hard all night. <laughs> and <laughs> I was explaining to Bryce how expensive the food is, and I was like, think of it like an entrance fee to an amusement park, kind of. That's the way we have to picture it, right? But I'm so excited we're going. I forgot where I was going after that with this. Oh, we're going to be in Vegas. I don't know if we've told Creepers that. Not not that we're going to be performing. Creepers. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be in Vegas acting a fool. So I'm sure if there are any Creepers in Vegas, find us at Zach. Please, Fagan. please find us. I mean, we'll be at any of the Cirque shows. We'll be walking the strip. We'll be falling on the strip. We're just going to be doing slots the entire time. <laughs> I cannot believe this is my first time going. So to exciting. I cannot believe that. I know. I know. I've like, I've honestly, I really think I'll actually love it. I, cause I know a lot of people are like, ugh, Vegas. Like it's just, you know, so, like CD and like whatever. But I, 
think that the concept of Las Vegas, the fact that it exists in modern times to me is like so it's wild. such a special place. The fact that there's an adult amusement park, basically, that's like with all the it's not it's not supposed to be perfect. It's supposed to be like where you can be the worst version <laughs> of yourself. And it's celebrated, which is crazy. I went Vegas popped up in thirties, forties. Maybe it's the fifth. <laughs> just spanned three decades. Of like, 30. I no, I you know what? I think you're right because uh, not to get like very uh like heady here, but I was reading um a Joan Didion novel called like Slouching, not called like called Slouching Towards <laughs> Bethlehem, and she does this whole section about Las Vegas and just in the sixties and like how. Mm fascinating of a place it is and just how it's like no holds bar and that it's kind of like just the craziest weirdest parts of the american dream like all yeah. in one like it's just it's i was reading it just like getting pumped does she talk <laughs> about go. well it's it's funny the idea of chronicling vegas that novel chronicling vegas in the 60s because it's strange to think that if it did pop up in the 60s it really hasn't been around for that long but it's accumulated so much history in such a short amount of time yeah it's infamous yeah really so we're gonna be there i'm 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 i can't even you know what's so funny is my dad has a like huge convention for his work every year in vegas and he's always like ugh. Yes, he's like, oh, gotta go to Vegas. I know <laughs> in his heart of hearts, he loves it. He loves the spectacle of it. Like, I think he loves observing, mm-hmm. just like, wow, this humanity is like this. <laughs> like, it, it's a microcosm of like all of America packed yeah. into one concentrated city yes. in the desert. I remember that when I yes. first drove to L.A., because I when I moved to L.A., I drove across the country, and I had to drive through Vegas. That was one of the stops I planned. I was coming from Utah, and it's just like miles of desert. And then for hours and hours, I was driving until I saw this tiny, tiny little city in the distance in the middle of the desert, and I thought it, I was imagining it. I was like, what is that? It was Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> I had a great... And you were like, oh, I'm in the hangover part three. Well, I was. It was my first time in Vegas, and I was doing it solo. It was the weirdest experience, and I had the best time. <laughs> I did everything I wanted I to do. How much money did you lose? I don't think I, I kept a, I kept a firm <laughs> lid on it, because don't forget, I was moving to Los Angeles, and I had only a few thousand in my bank account. <laughs> yeah. Actually, quick sad story about that. So before I moved to LA, I had a local bank. I had to switch to a national bank. And I moved every single dollar I had to my name over to that national bank. Let this be a cautionary tale for any of the creepers who are listening. I moved every dollar over to Bank of America. Nobody tells you when you're like 22 that when you move all of your money to a new bank account, it's not immediately available to you. There's a two-week hold on it until they can verify that money because it's like, a safety concern like the money might have been like laundered or it could have been like stole like there's a sure. lot of like things that was not explained to me <laughs> so when i moved all my money there the day before i was about to move to los angeles and they said there's a two week hold on your account and i'm about to travel alone across the country <laughs> and i have one <gasps> credit card with a $1000 limit i was like oh <laughs> Can can relate. Can relate back in the day. Can relate. Oh, it was a 
Oh, you poor Oh, thing. I was, no, this was the first time that I really like turned to my dad and I was like, dad, I, I don't ask for this usually, but I need some money. <laughs> I was like, I need some help. Because <laughs> I hadn't even paid my security deposit yet for my new apartment. I was like, oh, no. The stuff you learn trying to, like, break out of your small town and go to the big yeah. city. <laughs> the stuff you learn in that first year is pretty remarkable. And But, like, I look back on it. You probably look back on that so fondly being like, okay, I've well, I guess you had the safety net of your dad, but like there are so many things that went wrong that, that I definitely had safety net like with my parents for sure. But there were so many things that went wrong that I didn't have them for that. I was just like, OK, I'll figure it out. Whereas now I would be like, <gasps> like, <Yeah. laughs> we could just bounce right back. No, it truly makes you a survivor. I mean, because you moved to New York yeah. after college and I, I guess I moved to L.A. And I, I never really... I don't know if you've had this experience. I never really thought about that in the the way of like, oh, that's a really big, like scary thing to do. I was just like, oh, that's what I have to do. But then I was back home like a few years after and my uncle was talking about it. And he was like, God, he was like, it's so crazy. He was like, your brother moved to New York and like you moved to Los Angeles. And he was like, your sister's going to move to a big city. He was like, that's crazy to me. He's like, your dad and I, he's like, we were scared when we were like in our 20s. Like we couldn't, we were afraid to move to the town over, let alone like move to Los Angeles sure. or New York. And I'd never taken stock in that. Like how wild that is. I know. Does your family feel like, like that too? Small, ta- small town babies. Yeah. Um, I, I, ooh, I remember when I was getting ready to move to New York, my dad was like, you can't move to New York without a job. And I was like, <laughs> But this is what people do. I was like, this is what people do when they're trying to be actors. And he was like, I, I don't care. You're not going to New York City. And I was like, well, I am actually. And I moved <laughs> to an apartment above the Wicked Theater. And I mean, my... A fabulous location. <laughs> Did I ever tell you this? No. What? I used to look out my window. I had a cardboard box as a side table. My mattress was on the floor. <laughs> And I used to look out the window and just watch the cast come out and sign playbills. And I was like, that's going to be me. And like, there's like ramen burning in the microwave, like dark sided, baby. So dark. That's so real, though. The mattress (laughs) on the floor. Yeah. My 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 first mattress in L.A. was a blow up mattress, which I slept on for four months before I would bite the bullet to buy a one hundred and fifty dollar one on Amazon. And now you can catch us dead. We're we're basically like trying to get to the Ritz every oh, night. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to pretend. No, now I'm now I'm like, what what kind of Casper do I want? Like now, now it's <laughs> it's very different. I also had an experience like that though. It was um, I think it was Jen and I, and we were like really down in the dumps our first year in LA, and we were like just feeling like just bad actors. Like we hadn't booked much, and we ended up going to Denny's. If anyone who lives in Hollywood or lived in Hollywood like five years ago, they'd remember that there was a Denny's that like sits directly across from the Netflix building. And we were there, I kid you not, like two in the morning and it was pouring rain in LA. It never rains in LA. And we were sitting there like a movie, like hounding over like I was pancakes. just going to say, <laughs> why is that so romantic? We, it was it was anything <laughs> but. It was just des- destitute and sad. And like as we're like mm-hmm. drenching these pancakes in syrup, we just like look up out the window and you see the humming sign of the Netflix building. And it was so <sighs> serendipity is not the right word, but you know what I mean? Like it was just so like, oh God, <laughs> this couldn't get any yeah. worse. And, like what a picture this creates. It's like, 
Yeah, it's like reality making itself known to you. Uh, that's exactly what a great way to put that. <laughs> so anyway, creepers, we're very grateful for you. <laughs> also, hi everybody. Oh, man. I hope you enjoyed that like 12 minute debrief. Oh. <sighs> that was that was some banter for the books. That certainly was. Oh, um well, maybe I should shift us in. I should first, well, I'll first say hello, everybody. Welcome back to Creep Time, the podcast. It's Silas. It's Stu. We're here for a Friday episode. Stu, this is our last episode before our season finale. <gasps> oh, my drum roll. I'm so drum roll. I can't, can you believe it's been over a year? Over a year. And we've, we've got, we're going to have 50 episodes of content. 50. That's a lot of hours. That's a lot. 50 hours. 50. I wonder if we spent that much together when we traveled together on tour. Yeah. In the first week. Just like, in the it, first like week. just you and yes. me in like hotel rooms. Yeah. 50 hours. Just prank yeah. calling other people in hotel rooms. That's what we did. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm so grateful for you. And I'm so excited, truly, that like oh we're going to reach God. 50 me episodes. Too. I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but I will say that you are going to lead our our 50th episode so i won't say what the case is but i will say the votes have been counted ah! which thank god they voted for the the right one because it's the one we already picked i know <laughs> i know like, could you imagine but i yeah i'm super excited creepers thank you so much for listening for a year with spending a year with us if you haven't already please make sure that you follow or subscribe to the podcast you can hit the bell notification and i also i should say this because i ha- I won't say it with who but i had a conversation with somebody on the spotify team let's say and i won't do an impression of her or name her or anything but she she was like you've got to ask them to talk about it it just does an impression <laughs> immediately goes against <laughs> what i said i wasn't gonna do she was like ask ask the creepers to like mention it to their friends and i was like we always do and i think they do but creepers if you care to mention creep time the podcast to a friend family member a coworker, please do word of mouth is everything her words not mine word of mouth is everything <laughs> <laughs> well i'm sold and just like that <laughs> and just like that Let's not bring up and just like that. On here. <laughs> I was going to say, don't bring it up because I know there's a podcast in that show and that's we can't. Go is there. there a podcast in the show? Is well, it like a part of the HBO yes. podcast circuit or is it like it's separate? Carrie Brad. Oh, there's a no, podcast. Carrie Bradshaw's in the show. Oh, oh, that's what you're talking about. I mean, if yeah. spoiler alert, but if you haven't watched the show, that podcast gets canceled <laughs> <laughs> because of her. <laughs> and just like that, it was canceled. It was, yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Right, I'm going to shift us in because I have a special case for us today, which I warned you about last week, and it's very juicy. Yeah. And what's crazy about this is that I have never heard this case covered anywhere. I don't know how I found this, but when I did find it, I was going insane because never, at least as I don't think, a creeper has never suggested this case, and I've never heard anybody else cover it. 
<laughs> my light just went out above my computer. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> but setting the mood. C- certainly. I was like, <laughs> the environment is setting itself up for me. This is the Klein Falls Axeman, which I don't think you've heard of outside of me telling you about it. Have you? No, and I didn't look anything up on purpose. We love a blind react, y'all. Okay, I'm very excited. I think I should just dive straight into the backstory because this does have to be told like a story, like straight through. Are you ready? Okay. Now, this story, to fully understand the weight of it and just how dark it is, um... Like I said, I can't really give a top line. I'm just going to have to take you through every moment of it. So we're going to go back in time to 1977 at Yale University, right in New Haven, Connecticut. So follow me with this. It's scenic and it's beautiful, you know, picturesque campus in the 70s. And it's just filled with promising young students. And among those students, we're going to focus in on two young girls. There's 19-year-old Terry Gents and there's her roommate, Avra Goldman. It's unclear in this story whether or not this is her real name. This is the name that's been reported. But as far as I know, she does not want the story to follow her. So we're going to go with the name that is publicly facing. Um, And I'm not sure how old she was, but I think she's around the same age as Terry. So both girls were, you know, like I said, close in age. It's their freshman year. And they've got their sights set on some very big dreams on the campus. They're promising young students. But before they're going to go into their sophomore year, They really wanted to have a summer adventure. Now, I should also say that they're kind of different. I mean, both of them come from very different backgrounds. Terry grew up closer to Chicago, and she comes from more of like a middle class like family, whereas I think Avra actually came from parents who were both university professors, and they're very well off, like different different entrances into this world of um, academia, let's say. So where does the sense of adventure lead them? The summer comes... And the girls kind of happen to hear other Yale students talking about the Trans-American Biking Trail. Have you ever heard of this? I feel like I have, actually. Yeah, um, yeah I really feel like that sounds familiar. I mean, it's probably, it was popular back then, and I'm sure it continued on well after this, because this story is an anomaly that came out of it. But yeah, the tra- for anyone who doesn't know, this is a cross-country biking trail that you would typically do with a partner or a team. And it's considered very aggressive because it's going across the country. It's high adventure and you're going to be camping a lot. So you have to travel by bike with a lot of gear on your back. So Terry really fixates on this. Like she wants her and Avra to do this, but Avra is really apprehensive and the parents are also like, not really on board with this because it's an exhausting trail. Um, it goes on some very high and dangerous roads that are on the edge of a mountain. And they're going to be camping in random locations. And it's 1977 and they're two young girls. <laughs> like, I can I can feel the parents' concern. This is exactly why I can't have children because I would never go for this ever. No. it's It sounds wild to me. I'm like, as I was reading it, I I just like, started shaking my head about it and I was like I feel like the witch from Into the Woods where she's like don't you know what's out there in what's, the woods right <laughs> it's just crazy to me to think that I could like allow a kid to go do that especially when he's like 19 but regardless the girls are dead set on committing to this trip because Terry's kind of the ringleader of it 
And she's the one who's really pushing for it, despite the resistance from the parents and from Avra. But it looks like it's going to happen. Like Terry starts working an extra job in the school cafeteria to save up. And day and night, she is studying the guidebooks on this trail, like what they're going to look out for. And come early June, the girls are set to depart on the biking trip that would span 4,000 miles. So they take a Greyhound bus up to the start of the trail with their bikes, which is going to be in Astoria, Oregon. And while they're on the bus, they actually meet another couple who's in their 20s, and they're very athletic, and they're actually going up there to start the same trail. Like, they have all their gear. So now because Avra was already, like, very nervous about the idea of just the two of them traveling, like, she kind of takes the ropes here, and she somehow ropes the other two in. Like, she's like, oh, my God, you're a couple that's traveling this too. Like, we should all travel and do the trail together. Like, that would be amazing. Now... The couple agrees to this, but straight away, once they start, the couple realizes that they're in for a lot because these girls are not as experienced as them. And they're like, oh, my God, what did we get ourselves into? (laughs) Like, these girls are really struggling because day one, they're like pedaling through drizzle and rain. And the girls are just kind of like getting left behind. So they pedal nonstop with this couple and they haven't even cleared 200 miles of the 4,000 and they are exhausted. Like clearly there is a difference between the two and they're trying really hard to keep up, but it's that weird thing of like, you're also trying like as the couple trying to be polite, like, Oh my God, we can't just like leave the girls behind, but they're really slowing us down. So this continues on for a few days. And I think we arrive at Wednesday, June 22nd, the girls make the decision because they know what they're doing. They know that they're slowing down this couple. They're like, you know, we should really go up to them and just say, hey, just so you know, it's okay. Like, you can go ahead of us. Like, we're probably going to take our time and we want to, like, spend more time kind of camping and exploring nature. So definitely feel okay to, like, separate from us, right? Like, I could totally imagine that the way it was described in the story. Like, I would probably do that too. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Oh, sure. Absolutely. It's better for both parties. Yeah, I mean, you don't because you don't want to be, like, I don't know, the person to drag down with the strangers. But truthfully... I would say this became a fatal decision for them because the couple does move on. And I think the couple goes up like 20 miles ahead of them. And the two girls are left solo to go the rest of the way. Now it's on this day that the girls are just, they don't want to admit it, but they're starting to regret the trail a little bit because I don't think they anticipated just how exhausting this was going to be. They can't go much further than like 16 additional miles that day. So they end up deciding to stop near a state park, Klein Falls, where something sinister would go down that night. So let's talk about this because bad stuff always happens in the damn woods. Now you know, I know. my outward bound experience. It's my it's making <laughs> all things my, come back to this, outward the bound. <laughs> hair on the back of my neck. I know creepers are probably like, oh, Stu, please stop talking about outward Let bound. All, they my it, they one love it. Survival thing. <laughs> My one experience surviving in the woods. Um, I, I mean, this is. I went back in time. I just saw your eyes roll <laughs> back behind your head, and you were transported back <gasps> to Outward Bound. Because you know what, I'm trying to remember. I wasn't so far away from their age, and like I had all the feelings of. Now, first of all, what I did was mm-hmm. it was a step like seven day course out in the woods it was like barely anything not exhaust i mean it was exhausting but not like biking constantly all biking day across the country and, which is what yeah 
And I was with six other people that I knew and a, a, a trained survivalist that took us through the woods. And even then I was like, whoa, this is real. Do you have a cell phone? I or did they take your phone? No, took your phone. I mean, I <laughs> clonk. I cannot imagine in the seventies, like which it's already hard to like get to, you know, a nearby area where you're going to be able to get all the things you need oh, if yeah. you wanted to leave. I don't even know where you are. But I like, don't have a sense of direction that could manage that at all. Totally. But on top of that, thinking about, I'm sure their gear, their bikes. I mean, everything was like, you know, it's not what it is today. It's not all like. It's tough. Like that was really hard work that they were embarking on. I mean, and they knew it too. So they I'm were just, feeling I'm it. mentally preparing myself. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, I, I guess in in that sense, like they were exhausted and they were like, if we keep going, that's going to be dangerous because we're going to hurt ourselves. Or we're going to like, you know, we're just not going to come across a place to sleep for the night because when you camp, like you have to find like an appropriate place to camp, which they thought Klein Falls was going to be. So they get into Klein Falls because it is a state park because darkness is falling. And they're just hoping that there's a campground where, like, okay, we can just set up for the night and just unwind. We'll start fresh tomorrow. But to their shock, they're completely deflated because once they get into it, it's littered with signs that say day use only. It's not an overnight campground. But again, like, what would any of us do? Like, they're exhausted. It's the 70s. They can't call anybody. They're just kind of stuck where they are because they're not going to pedal through the darkness. So they're like, screw it. Like, we'll just set up we'll pitch a tent and we'll set up camp tonight and we'll just get out of here early in the morning so that's what they do avra helps terry kind of set the tent up and it rolls around to 10 11 p.m and the girls drift off to sleep now as terry was sleeping late into that night she is suddenly woken up by the intense sound of screeching tires that come barreling through the dirt <gasps> of the woods and then out of no, she has no idea what's going on. She just feels like a crushing weight on her chest. Terry has been run over by a pickup truck in the woods and is pinned under the wheel with the full weight of this thing on her body, crushing her lungs and her ribs. She has no contacts in, can't like opens her eyes and just sees like black and blurry figures, can't see anything, has no idea what the hell just happened. And she can now see out of her tent because she's like looking into the blackness because the truck like completely ripped up the tent and she doesn't know where Avra is. So she's just kind of frozen, look, looking up into the blackness. And then all of a sudden she hears Avra go, leave us alone, followed by the sound of a car door slam and then the sound of a thud. She has no idea what just happened. And then she hears seven shrill hits the sound of a sharp and bloody and gurgling sound coming over from Avra. And then silence. Then she hears the sound of this person get back into their truck, shut the door, and then they wheel off, off of her chest and she takes in, like, attempts to take in her first breath, which is the craziest thing. And, like, half of her ribcage is just completely crushed. And she's trying so hard to get Aaron and just, like, make sense of what just happened in the span of, like, 60 seconds. But then all of a sudden, before she like kind of like drifts out of it for a few seconds, she comes to because she feels the intense blow of a sharp hit to the head. Has no idea, no idea what just happened or where it's coming from. And it just keeps happening. One, two, three, until she lifts her hands up to grab 
what it is that's over her, and she feels the sharp blade of an axe. She was being axed to death and was aware of it and knew she was going to die. Do we pause there for a sec just to breathe? Because I, I know I just, I took you from zero to 60 pretty fast, but. <laughs> that was the rock and roller coaster <laughs> in Disney it, it World. Seriously um, was. Okay, hold on. So was she run over? She was run over and did the driver not know that there were two girls there? Like, do you think he, I mean, maybe we'll get into it, but like. I mean, if. Did he back up and then was like, oh, there's another body there? Like, I, you know, it's not really clear, but I would assume if he got out to axe them, it was probably intentional that he thought like, I'm going to run over these girls and then I'm going to axe up the bodies because he saw those tents. Okay. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I don't even know if he knew they were women unless he had been watching them beforehand. But he just saw tents. What an, what an insanely, like, outrageously angry person this must be. It's, that's the craziest part of the story is the, the complete lack of motive. And I'm going to fill you in because I – this is one of the craziest stories because there's really so much context from the locals that comes out of this, like, local rumors and stories that come out later – so I'm going to backfill you on so much of like what went down in this town, in this area. But yeah, so he ran over the girls, was on top of Terry, seven hits to Avra. Like she just hears Avra like go completely silent because she hears bloody hits. And then now this man is axing her, Terry, in the head. So let me get us back on track with where we left off. Rib cage. Let's see. He tries to grab. She grabs the axe. She can tell it's an axe, and she's like, "I'm gonna die. I'm about to die." But then all of a sudden, she gets her first like blurred glimpse of who's doing this. She looks up above her, and she can see in the silhouette of the moonlight, it's a man who's standing over her. And from her description, it was the back silhouette of what looked like a cowboy, the mysterious cowboy of the woods. He's wearing boots. She can tell. He has a crisp and neatly tucked in button up shirt. He's wearing a hat and he is holding a blood soaked axe directly over her, ready to strike again. And then he moves the axe very slowly over her chest, which is totally caved in. And she's just wheezing at this point. And he's about to whack directly into her heart. He raises the axe and then, for whatever reason, no known reason, just walks away back to the truck, hops in. And she hears the sound of the tires skid off into the forest. Now we can pause again because Jesus Christ. <laughs> Let me take a sip. And- this this truly feels like a, I mean, I know we always say it feels like a movie, but I mean, for there to be a moment of I'm not going to do this and her to be like saved in that moment is very cinematic it's, to me i mean the way i mean because most of how the, uh, as you can tell this is a survival story so like how this is told in her own words is just the craziest thing i can't wrap my head around that to think that this happened to somebody and like she remembers every single piece of it so he drove away now she's just we're left like in the woods we're in klein falls and terry is just laying there she's covered in blood she can barely move and she's just sitting there in the si- and I was imagining the silence in the aftermath of that when you're just sitting there in the shock like you can hear yourself struggling to breathe and you just hear like the crickets of the woods now from her description 
She claimed that her body went into a state of numbness where she no longer felt the pain of what happened to her from adrenaline. But she knew in her mind, she's like, I am extremely injured. Like, I've, I've just been axed to my head and my body. And I was run over by a damn truck. So she's frozen. And she hears the soft sound of Avra moaning next to her. She's still alive. So to Terry's description, this gave her some kind of a jolt of strength to somehow get herself up to crawling and then standing. She stands up after being run over. And this, I mean, I can't even think of a worse scenario. No cell phones. Wooded camping area where no one else is camping because it's day use only. No car. There, There is no circumstance that could be worse than this. She gets her way over to Avra. And she, again, like no contact. So she can't really see and it's dark. And she's just trying to feel. And she starts feeling around up Avra's body, which is just slick with blood. And eventually gets up to her head. And what she feels is blood all over her face. She can feel the sharp shards of bone protruding from her skull. And then she touches something soft. She's touching her friend's (gasps) brain. So she knew in this moment, if there is any, any chance that they are going to survive this, it's up to her. She has got to be the one to go and find help. I don't know how she did this, but she somehow moves herself back over to the tent. She puts in her contact lenses in the dark, grabs a flashlight, Stu. She starts to run through the woods, just headed in the direction of where she remembered the main road was. Like, and she would carry on running all the way until she gets to the main road. Miraculously, when she gets out there, she sees a pair of headlights coming towards her. And she's like, oh my God, thank God. But then she thinks, it's him. What That's the him? truck. Yeah. The guy that ran us over, the cowboy, is coming back for us. So, but it's her only chance. I mean, how? what are the chances she's going to find a car in the middle of the night? So she just stands there covered in blood and the truck pulls up slow next to her and to her relief she looks inside and sees two teenagers it's bill penhollow and darlene gervais and they look at her and they're like oh my god like horrified because it's a girl who is drenched in blood she's standing there and she doesn't realize it yet but she is just covered from all of the wounds from the axe hits her entire right lung has collapsed Most of her right ribs are shattered, and they've also collapsed. Her collarbone has shattered. Her entire right arm is completely broken. She has no, not cognizant of that at all. Now, this is insane, but she explains what happened, and they actually get out and go with her back into the woods. She leads them back to Avra, Bill and Darlene. They help to lift Avra back to the truck, and I don't know why the hell they did this, but they also grabbed their camping supplies. (laughs) priorities and i was like was it from rei or something why are we grabbing the supplies well i wonder if it's because they didn't want any trace of them like it like they wanted to to make sure that guy didn't like come back to find their stuff like if he was a wacko possibly i mean we're never really gonna know i guess unless we talk to the teenagers but it also just could have been like logic from shock as well i'd imagine because that's a really shocking thing to see like you're just like uh help help clean this like fix this so they get everybody back into the truck avra is clinging on barely alive and they just head to the closest hospital they can think of so they would end up arriving to the redmond emergency room which is 
nowhere near, nowhere near equipped to handle the injuries these girls have um, because the girls need emergency surgery if they're going to survive. So they're transported by ambulance over to St. Charles Medical Center, where both girls are admitted into immediate treatment and surgery. Terry, although half her body was crushed, is given reconstructive surgery and is put on a breathing machine to reinflate her lung. And miraculously, she is going to be okay and recover. Avra is much more critical. Nobody knows if she's going to make it or if she does what her cognition would be like if she has severe brain damage because she does have damage to her skull and her brain has been exposed. But after hours, hours of surgery and recovery, she eventually wakes up. She's completely blind, but she does wake up and her cognition is intact, but she has no memory of what happened to her, which she actually considered herself to be grateful for. But she didn't remember any of that Mm -hmm. night. Now, after 10 days in the ICU, Avra's vision actually partially does return. She can mostly see what's around her and she can recognize things, but she does have permanent blind spots in her vision from the damage to her brain. So she would never be able to drive and she would struggle with like reading and writing without assistance. But eventually both girls recover and are discharged. Thoughts on that (laughs) for a second. Miracle, an absolute so, miracle, full miracle. Like, so t- Terry, yes. what what were her? How, did she re- like? How did she recover? How did she make she, it? Out? She recovered fine because she's left with scars all over her body from the axe wounds, but they were mostly superficial, okay. um, like cosmetic. And then her chest had been crushed, but they're able to reinflate the lung. It can heal. Right. Her ribs will eventually repair. She had emergency surgery to help reconstruct her chest, which was successful, but she's permanently going to be like disfigured from the crush. Yeah. But she lives. She's okay. The difference with her is that she remembered everything. Everything. Every right. single detail. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. The uh, The choice, like you could make between being blind but having like no memory of it or remembering everything and being like partially I mean uh, like pretty much left unscathed after surgery after all that stuff like it's yeah it's difficult to compare like which one I would rather one is I mean yeah like the haunting memory of that night and uh, truthfully I mean we'll get into this in a little bit of the story as you can tell I'm like getting through the exposition kind of quick because there's a lot of like backfill here but yeah. The saddest part about this, truthfully, is that although both girls do recover, the the horror of the attack and, you know, what this axe man did to them, it really divides the two girls. Um, and I don't I'd be interested to hear like a psych a psychologist's POV on this, but Avra really kind of misappropriates most of the blame of what happened partially towards Terry. And I think from what was described in the reporting I saw, the thought is that, you know, I never even wanted to go on this trip. Like you were the one who pushed for this. You forced me. And then you suggested that we go in this overnight camp. You knew we weren't supposed to. And it's like, she's harnessing so much of the anger of what happened to her and just how senseless it was by trying to make sense of it and looking to some kind of a culprit around her. And in this case, in her mind, Terry is the closest thing to that. And they just completely divide. Like, it really, really harms their friendship and they fall away from each other. Does that kind of make sense, though, to you? Like, 
I can understand. It's so sad. I I can understand how that happens. But I mean, when you, I think anybody that does, you know, cross country trails or people that camp or people that rock climb, I mean, there's all going to be, there's a lot of risk that comes with this, with, with that. But with something like this, I don't think it accounts for that, the kind of calculated risk that those outdoor adventure seekers normally go for. I mean, or account for, they don't account for a person showing up and trying to ax them to death. I mean, what are the chances, the thing is, especially too, with like the lack of motive is just crazy here. It's so wild. Yeah. I mean, they couldn't have anticipated this. I still can't get over, I can't get over him. Just halting from doing that one final blow. Why? What? What happened? What changed in his mind? He was hovering it over her heart, ready to just. I mean, that probably would have been a fatal wound. I'm assuming, like to axe really deep into somebody's heart, and he just decided not to. He just left her there. It's, I mean, it was certainly somebody angry, but to me, the first thing I thought was that, like, this this person thought that there or maybe had heard that people camp out there that really shouldn't but it's not like your typical like i don't oh, know are like, you saying he's like been home, a homelessness thing or something like i'm you know how there's yeah. people that just get so angry at people that are either homeless or they are you yeah. know taking up space in a place they're technically not supposed to be but it's their only means and like 99% of people would go, okay, that's, you know, I don't like, I want yeah. that human to be safe. There's those, that 1% of people that just like cannot stand the idea of like people crossing those like boundaries. And like, something. that's what I kept thinking. You're really onto something. Okay. That's, I mean, a lot of people have thought of okay. that, but I, I think you're dead on with that because one of the most interesting details that Terry recalled from seeing him was just how neatly dressed he was. And a lot of people have inferred mm-hmm. that from that, he is probably a person who has deep, deep anger and psychological issues, but also somebody who needs a lot of order and like mm-hmm. definitive lines of order in their life. You dress a certain way. This is what's proper. So like what you're saying, like, yeah, when somebody strays from you know, the path of society as he perceived it, even though it's just two innocent girls camping, if he thought they were like in a place they weren't supposed to be, you know, after nightfall. Is that what spurred this crazy, crazy attack? It certainly seems like it also from the running them over. Oh, my God. Because you could just pull up to the tent, get out and decide to, you know, raise hell and wreak havoc on whoever's inhabiting the tent. But the idea of gunning it and running them over like that is some serious like. There was some anger charge behind that. It could also be that he didn't even know there were people in the tents, maybe. And he thought they were left behind and that's what made him angry. So then he ran it over and then realized he had partially like injured witnesses in a weird way. So it's this is a horrible, horrible thing to associate it with. But I know there are certain people who think about this when it comes to accidentally running over animals where it's like a mercy kill Mm. where if it's suffering you kill it that could have also been the twisted mm-hmm. logic where he was like i just ran over people and i thought i was just clearing out tents and then he i has could to kill them 
Sorry. No, no, that's it. I could see it if like he had a gun or something mm-hmm. like that. He just went and shot and them like if he thought they were wild. dead. But and Axe is sinister beyond I, hell. Sinister. And I think your first instinct, if you had that much empathy and compassion, you would get out of your car, assess the situation, see that, you know, one of them is breathing and the other one's whatever. And you'd go, yep. oh my God. Like, Leave us alone. Yeah. <laughs> we have to get help. We have to figure this out. Or you just peel off, you know, like yeah. I... I, I think that the axe is very telling. I think he knew exactly what he was going to do. Well, maybe I should. Uh, I can't wait to give you some of the local lore on this because you're going to eat that up. You're going to eat it up. So that alliteration, the local, local lore, lore. I'm already. <laughs> That's going to be a spinoff <laughs> of this podcast. Local lore. That's a great idea. Somebody write that down. Local Creepers. Oh my write God. that in the comments so I don't forget. <laughs> and we'll just take hometown stories. I love that. Oh, I love that so much. Oh, that's great. So let's see. Now, the girls, like I said, they kind of do divide on this. And it's it's really pretty sad. They do eventually return to Yale after this catastrophic event. They continue their studies. And uh, eventually, I mean, they, although they're, you know, they're marred with the scars of the unimaginable, they go on to continue and just move on with their lives. Avra has these permanent blind spots um, and she has a metal plate left in her head. Uh, from all of the wounds and Terry has all these scars on her body but they continue on their separate ways Avra becomes a doctor despite having these blind spots because she's still able to practice her cognition was not impaired she marries and has three children and really just wants to separate herself from this horrible event that ever happened she doesn't want to think about it Terry moved on with her life and moves to New York City and Terry you know being the one the only one who remembered that night she is riddled as anyone can imagine with just crippling anxiety and this consistent nightmare of what happened to her that would continue on for over a decade after that and just this mystery this haunting mystery of like who was the cowboy in the woods who was it and why did he do this so years would pass and then we hit the 90s terry is 33 now and she has a reckoning because she decides to pack up her apartment and she's going to move to Los Angeles. It's funny. We were talking about like moving to LA and New York before this started. Mm-hmm. Serendipity. Um, because she's going to move there mm-hmm. to pursue a career in screenwriting. Um, but in the midst of doing so, she's checking through her stuff and she finds her old camping gear. Because it was retrieved that night and she kept it all these years, even with the blood on it. This like reawakened something in her and it sparked something in Terry where she realizes how angry she is. The last 15 years of her life have been consumed with just attempting to recover from that night and through therapy, and it's never been enough. So she decides in that moment, she has to do it. She has to find who this man is, and this is going to send her on a journey that I'm about to get into. Just thoughts on that, because this is wild. The lengths that this woman goes to. No one, no wonder she's a screenwriter. I <laughs> this, I like I said, this is so cinematic. This feels like you could write a whole series about. I'm this surprised nobody story. ever talks about this. I mean, she did write a book on this, and um, maybe it has been adapted into a movie. I've never heard of it. The Klein Falls Axeman. No, I've never heard of it. It might be because Avra doesn't want to be involved in the story, and maybe that's why, because they'll never get like permission for likeness. I have no idea. <clears throat> mm-hmm. talking out of my ass 
as if I have any like legal knowledge about like it's probably because they can't get the rights. I have no <laughs> idea. So let's just go through the the sort of self-propelled investigation that Terry gets through because it's going to move very fast. So Terry hits the ground running with her own investigation. She calls the Deschutes County District Attorney's Office to request all of the evidence files on the case. Now, Terry is initially told that all of the files have been discarded because so many years have passed. This is 15 years later, and the statute of limitations has run out, which, really quick sidebar, any attorneys who are listening, please explain this to me in the comments. Why is there a statute of limitations when it comes to murder and attempted murder? I've never understood that. Ever. It makes no sense to me. I know. I guess I feel like it must be just like a resources thing. Like they don't want to like waste resources on somebody that could possibly be running around killing people. Mm-hmm. But I think that, that that's probably, if I had to guess... You want to guess how short the statute of limitations was in 1977 for Oregon? For attempted murder? <laughs> well, I feel like it's Oregon. I feel like it would be... I don't know. If you're a pretty like progressive state, would it be longer or shorter? I think it would be longer. Um, I think that's the more progressive thing. Yeah. To, like... That's what I was going to say. Well, in 1977, it was three years. Or... <laughs> Well, okay, but see, that's that's the other thing that I was going to say is that in a more progressive state, are you more forgiving? And you're like, let's just give them a second chance after three years. For attempted murder. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying, I though, because I think in a more conservative state, they're going to be like, hell no, you're going to go, we're going to find your ass. Oh, you, like pro-prison kind of, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, pro-prison, pro-prison yeah. whereas I feel like in a more progressive place they're going to be like that's interesting you know more forgiving yeah i mean i think i had kind of envisioned this because this part of oregon is pretty rural and seemed more conservative so i i thought it would have been the opposite kind of like what you're saying but we would also learn like how debauch like there was so much debauchery with this investigation because what was really confusing and i'll get into it in a second is that it took place in a state park Klein Falls is a state park. So jurisdiction-wise, it was really murky. Like, who takes a hold of this investigation? Mm. Like, is it the state? Is it, like, county? Because technically, it's, like, in the middle of, like, three different counties. So it's – that was, like, to their detriment from the get-go. So she asks for the records, and they're like, we threw them all out because the statute of limitations had run out all those years ago. Um. But eventually, she like she really stays persistent on this. And even though she was told they don't exist, she calls around and they end up digging them up. So they found them somewhere. So Terry drives all the way back up to Oregon, 17 hours. She drives alone to go get these files and come back to the very area where it all went down, which she had not been back to since the attack. And she's struck when she sees the files because it's very slim, the case file. She reads through the report and it's really difficult to stomach through, you know, like the police description of the night and all of the horrible things that happened to them. But what she learns is that police went to the scene of the crime and they found tire tracks. And she learns that there were a total of five witnesses that were interviewed in the Klein Falls area who were near the park that night who described seeing someone who matched the description of the mysterious cowboy that Terry saw. Young, white. Physically fit, a little taller than average, very neatly dressed, and driving a Ford-style pickup truck in the middle of the night. But nothing else. 
There is no further investigation. And the big question is why? So like I said, she learns that jurisdiction-wise, this was very tricky because nobody really knew whose hands this was going to fall into because I think it was, let's see, three different, yeah, three different counties. It was like Redmond PD, then local PD near Klein Falls, then the Deschutes County, and then possibly the state that was also looking at it as well. So nobody was like cross-referencing like any of their leads. And I think it was a case of like, Different stations thought the other station was, like, pursuing the investigation, so nobody pursued the investigation. <laughs> I was like... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Are you talking about county? Yeah, I was like, oh, oh, par for the course, as it would appear. <laughs> county police just not investigating a murder. Nothing to see here. <laughs> Poor Terry. She didn't She didn't know. She had three different counties looking into this. Track county. Every single one of them dropped the ball. So you could imagine how frustrating this was for her. Um, like and going through these police records, um, it's a lost cause because Terry is getting this idea that they never really cared to pursue the investigation. So she gets a new idea. She's like, I'm going to go to the library in this county and I'm going to check through the archived local newspapers of any of the news on the Klein Falls Axeman, like stories that were printed at the time, which again, it made me think of that quote that was so true because we were talking about it a few episodes ago. There are always three stories in every case that are told. There's the story the police tell the story the news tells, and the story the locals tell. Mm-hmm. Juicy. It's so good. It's juicy. <laughs> that's your, that's also your catch, that, that's the catchphrase for um, local lore. L- local. If you ever make <laughs> that's it a so, thing. Oh my god. Welcome to local lore. There's always <laughs> three stories. I can't <laughs> wait. It's going to be so good. <laughs> so she, it's a smart idea for her though I, I would say to go back and like look through the local newspapers because those journalists they're sleuths they're gonna they're gonna dig up some stuff and they're gonna oh, yeah. report on things allegedly so she looks through some of the newspaper articles and most of them are just pretty useless or they're telling the story in a really misogynistic way a lot of the, the papers actually blamed the girls and it was like well what were they doing in a place they shouldn't have been camping overnight and it's like they were run over with a truck. <laughs> they were axed. What are we talking about? But she does find one paper that's really interesting. It's a paper called the Ben Bulletin. Um, and someone back years prior had submitted an anonymous editorial on their story. And what chills her is that in the story, it's suggesting that the locals know who the man is who did this and that the Klein Falls axe attack suspect is an open secret that lingers in the area. People know a name. So then she gets the sense that the reason there's a dead end here with the police is that somebody knows something, and there's a reason that they've protected that name. So then Terry has her lead, and the only way she's going to get that name is to go through the locals. So she starts to ask around town. She introduces herself to everybody as like, I'm one of the girls. Hi, I'm one of the girls from the Klein Falls axe attack. And of course, everybody looks at her and they're like, it's like seeing a ghost. They're like, oh my God, because it just brings up these horrible memories from that town. And she would pursue this, interviewing locals and like trying to get information out of people for two years. She does this. People in this town are tight lipped. And she hits a lot of roadblocks until she gets her first big break here because she tracks down Bill. Bill was one of the teenagers who rescued her that night, and she tries to meet him at his house. She ends up meeting his girlfriend, Laureen, instead. 
Now, Loreen is like the same age as Terry. They're both in their 30s and they're very different. Terry is very much like a city woman and Loreen is very much like a rural girl, like Gail. And um, she's a Redmond local. Like she grew up there and she she remembered the Axeman from Klein Falls. But Loreen is kind of the smoking gun in this town because she connects Terry with the story and she just tells her everything she knows. And it's probably because she's connected to Bill because Bill also suffered from nightmares and PTSD from that night in the woods, like seeing her in that way. You know what I mean? Like stumbling upon like Terry when she was literally had leaking wounds from her head. So Laureen is going to tell some stories. Any thoughts before I dive into what Laureen spills? (laughs) I am loving Laureen already. Laureen is a, she's a trip. She is, She's it. <laughs> I'm imagining her like on a front porch, like looking at Terry, like looking her up and down, being like, come inside. In Terry's book, like sits her down. Literally, in Terry's book, that's how she's <laughs> described. She's described kind of like really? visually, she's described like the warden from Holes, Sigourney Weaver, like cow- cowboy belt buckle. Amazing. Got the cowboy like 10 gallon hat on or something. Like. <laughs> Denim, top Amazing. and bottom. Amazing. It's exactly who I wanted Laureen to be in this story. Because Laureen's going to talk. Laureen's like, I've got something to tell you, girl. Laureen's like, I got a couple of exes that used to work for county police. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's so good. So this is where all of the local lore really does come in. So after the attacks and kind of like the faux investigation from the police, there were whispers around town that everybody knew. Who, who they thought did it to the girls. There's one name that comes up. So we're going to backtrack to a story that Lorene tells about this man. On Thursday, June 23rd, 1977, this is the morning after the Axeman attacks took place. Because they happened in, like, happened in the middle of the night and then it like rolls around to the morning, like after midnight, June 23rd. There is a young man, a teenager actually, who was driving a pickup truck drunk through the roads of Redmond. He was 17 years old. He made his way to the local seed fields. And from how this was described from Laureen's story in Terry's book, there are like lots of kids who hang out in the seed fields. Like they meet up there. It's kind of like a hang spot in the 70s. So this kid arrives, throws the truck in park, barrels out. It's the morning and he is hammered, Stu, like blackout Mm. drunk, this kid. Now he has a girlfriend and his girlfriend is there I can't share her name. I actually can't even share his name. So I'm going to use aliases for this. Um, She's standing there with all the kids in the area and she sees him get out and she can tell that not only is he drunk, he's high on Valium. So she checks the back of his truck and she finds a half empty handle of vodka and she pours it out and replaces it with water secretly. He realizes this and he goes insane throws her to the ground in front of everyone and starts brutally kicking in this girl's head over and over and over. And she crawls up and starts running away to a nearby pond. He races after her, grabs her, and holds her head underwater. And the most disturbing thing about this story, from what Laureen was telling, is that none of the boys stopped to to stop him. They stood there paralyzed in fear because they were afraid of him. The only teenagers who tried to stop him were two younger girls. They were 13 and 14 who were there. They followed him to the pond and started pelting him in the head with rocks to try to get him to stop. 
so she could get up and take air. Now, at this point, there was so much commotion going on, according to Lorraine's story, so much noise that the seed field operator shows up and he kind of diffuses the entire scene and he gets all the kids to like get out of there and he gets that kid to get out and let her go. So the girlfriend swims out of the pond. She's horrifically beaten to the point where she has to go to the hospital and that kid gets back in his truck drunk and drives off. Now, this gets back to the parents and the families, obviously, and that kid, that 17-year-old, gets arrested over the weekend. But for some reason, and we don't know why this happened, and Lorene doesn't know why this happened either, even though he's with county police, he's released and not charged. According to the story and the rumors in town, his parents must have had a little bit of money, because not only did they pay the police, they allegedly also paid the girlfriend's parents to settle it. Nobody presses charges. Now, in the retelling of this story, like I said, the man is never actually publicly named, but I'm going to use the alias of the 17-year-old Dave, we're going to call him. Thoughts on that story before I get into a little bit more about Dave. But he kind of sounds like a a lunatic to me, where I'm like... Well, it, it, I mean, it tracks for me in terms of my, what I was feeling earlier, that it's somebody that's angry or disgruntled about something. And in this case, it, it makes, it, well, first of all, I'm mad at myself that I didn't think about the driver being drunk. That makes a lot of sense. I didn't either, um, if it's any but, consolation. I was, because I, I, yeah. I never think of killers like, being drunk about that? ever. I've never thought of a killer being yeah. created. Yeah, that's very true. Um but I, I think my initial feeling of like this being an anger issue from like order or whatever, mm. I think that's a mislead. I think, think so? it, like this feels more. Yeah. I mean, it feels more accurate that it would be like there was an inciting incident previously that like would make this person want to just like go well, off. Well, no, this, and hap- kill this someone. happened after the axe attack. Yes. Oh, so yeah. Sorry if that wasn't clear. So the axe attack happened oh, the wait, night wait, before. Wait, maybe I misheard. Yeah, the axe attack happened the night before. This is the following morning that the the guy shows up in the seed field and like the girlfriend beat up thing happens. Oh my god. Okay, I don't know why I thought that it was the same night. Okay, but it does make sense. Like two things can be true. Huh. I think like it's possible he could have been drunk, but it's also possible he has this in, like insatiable rage. Um because of lack of order or something or he just yeah he's just angry and just was looking to harm clearly he's a violent person yeah so maybe it was like the next day okay this changes things like <laughs> sorry i knew that was gonna maybe... shift that was gonna shift the axis of this a little bit but <laughs> i had to clarify no 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 that was my fault i i didn't i didn't hear you um or i i i think i phrased uh, it odd. wasn't listening properly <laughs> oh, well we're just we're we're gonna survive um, I, <laughs> I think that that certainly changes, like, wh- wh- why would you do that in the, so you're saying that happened in the morning, in the daytime? Yeah, it was like early, da- daylight, early in the morning, goes to the seed field where all the kids are like hanging out. And I don't know if like other kids are like smoking and drinking, but it was just like a morning hangout spot in the 70s like in this small rural town see that's weird that's so weird that you would think i'm gonna do this insane thing in front of my friends like in the in the daytime when like it's not like i can understand Mm -hmm. when 
things like that go haywire when there's been like a night of drinking or it's like 2 a.m. And like this guy decides to go like ape shit. Sorry. One, oh, I was three. like, where are we? <laughs> where are my notes? But it just doesn't make sense. It like, unless there was like anger or guilt trickling in from the night before. I Like that makes sense totally. to me. Well, it also, from what I was piecing together from all of like the absence of action from any of the boys, this guy, Dave, the 17 year old, he's known to be a bit of a psychopath. Like he is violent, vicious, yeah. and can instantaneously physically go after somebody so there it seemed like from Laureen's story there was an absence of shock when everybody was witnessing this they were just like Mm. it was horrible but nobody's intervening because they're like this is him except for the good on those like two girls the two like brave souls there who like start pelting the guy with rocks doing something when a girl's being drowned in a pond but I was like so infuriated, like reading the story. But this is, I mean, you can imagine what this has done for Terry when she hears about this Dave guy. Cause she's like, Jesus Christ, like that's the guy. Like this, this sounds like the best lead I've ever heard. Now, a little bit more about Dave. Like I said, there were rumors across town because Dave was known to be an unstable teen. And a lot of rumors behind the axe attack because most people thought that he was probably behind it. And they believe that on the night of June 22nd, he was the one who backed over them with his truck and attempted to kill them and then continued driving through the morning while still drunk, still high to the seed field, and then attacked his girlfriend. According to Laureen, Dave almost perfectly fit the physical profile of the attacker. He was impeccably dressed a cowboy farmhand type who often wore a hat, always had a tucked in, neatly pressed shirt, and was tall, imposing, and mature in disposition. So Terry is hearing this and immediately replaying the silhouette that she had buried in her mind 15 years later of the man standing over her, lit by the moonlight, the mystery cowboy. And she's like, this is him. It's got to be Dave. So then Terry's got her lead and she starts asking around town, to say, like, what do you know about this guy, Dave? And it is completely unanimous that she learns that most people in the town think that Dave was behind it for obvious reasons. In fact, to the point that everyone had nicknamed him at the time, Hatchet Man. Oh, my God. And one of his former friends, Dave's former friends, anonymously shares that Dave, when asked later on about, like, where he was the night before like his attack of his girlfriend, like, where were you on the night of the Klein Falls attack? Dave never remembered, couldn't give an answer. So Terry goes through these leads and she collects all this information between 1994 to 1995. And she would also learn from locals that Dave was known to carry tools and an ax in his truck at all times. But in the week following the attack, the ax was never seen again. I'm giving myself chills, baby. (laughs) I'm giving myself chills. (laughs) So, Here's the most compelling part of this lead. Terry finds the former girlfriend that Dave beat up on the morning of June 23rd, that the one he tried to drown, he, she finds her, finds this girl. And this girl is an open book with her. She tells this girl, Terry, everything. And she says, I am convinced that Dave is the one behind the attack. From what this girl remembered, when she went to the back of Dave's truck to pour out the vodka on the morning of June 23rd, she noticed that his tools and axe were gone which was never the case 
she had never been in his truck where his tools and his axe weren't there because he's a farmhand and he always had them on him. Now, two days after that, once she was recovering from being you know, beaten senselessly, um, she learned about the axe attack and she was like thinking, oh my God, what if it's Dave? She goes alone, the girlfriend, back to the scene of the crime in the woods, which was taped off, looks to the ground because there were tire tracks that were left. It is a concrete match to the pickup truck, Dave's pickup truck. And the reason she could tell is because the two front tire patterns were different. And Dave's truck had two different brands of tires on the front two wheels (gasps) of his damn truck. Smoking gun. That is it baby i when sue when i heard this when i was like researching this i was losing my mind i was like this is sleuthery through the damn roof oh my god i you you i get a high from the sleuthery i get a high from her solving the case like literally i oh my god but do you know what's what what, what we're like the, to me one of the other smoking guns is the damn vodka like that he had he for sure had been, he must have been drinking the night before too. Oh, absolutely. Don't absolutely. you think? I mean, nobody just like, clears a half a handle yeah. in like a cut, like a couple hours. Like that was in the morning. That was over the course yeah. of the night. I don't think the guy ever slept. I think he was drinking and high on Valium yeah. all night, did this horrible thing in Klein Falls in the woods, and then just kept driving, maybe pulled off for a little bit, but kept driving through the morning until he got to the seed fields. Sure. I think that makes perfect sense. The, the tires, when she was like, there were two different tire patterns. She's like, and I know for a fact, because like one of his front tires blew out and he had to get a, it was like mismatched. He had to get a tire from a different brand because it was cheaper. I was like, oh my God. It probably would have been valuable information to tell the police, which I think she did according to her story. But again, there were reasons that this police force kept things quiet and people kept their lips tight allegedly (laughs) so terry hears this and as you can imagine she is spiraling as i was uh because she's got some hard evidence now against this guy so she collects all of this she takes it back to the state police and she's like you reopen this damn investigation how dare you she gives them all the findings and she's got this like you know potential lead and he could potentially be violent again So the Oregon State Police, they decide to pursue the lead. They track him down. He now lives out in Washington with a wife and two kids. They find him. He's rugged looking, very blue collar. His skin is kind of careworn from years of farming. And police, you know, ask him to come in for some questioning and they get him to agree to take a polygraph test, considering all of this like testimonial against him. He agrees. So he sits down for the test and he's asked about the case. And he insists that he is innocent. He passes the test. But then police learned that before he came in, he took muscle relaxers and he mixed them with alcohol to calm his nerves. Because a polygraph test, if anybody doesn't doesn't know, because I don't think I fully knew this, measures your stress levels. He skewed the results by artificially numbing his body. So they realized this and they had to toss out the results. So then they get him back in again, asking the same questions once he's sober. He fails. Three separate analysts look at these results and they agree he was not being truthful. And the police come down hard on him and they're like, 
we absolutely know that you tried to kill those girls in the woods. Apparently, the guy breaks down in tears and says, I've never stopped thinking about the Klein Falls attack. Which sounds like a confession, but apparently it's not. I think we kind of ran into this with like the the Mary Day case as well. Something that sounds Mm -hmm. like a confession, but it's not. But then police learn that he came in and took the test and was on meth when he took it. So they can't use those results in court. So then they have him come in for a third time in June of that year. He couldn't even get through the damn door. He was so drugged out. So they all suspect him. Everybody on the force. They're like, this is the guy. Like, there is there is beyond a shadow of a doubt, like, this is the guy. But we can't get a confession out of him, and we can't even get a polygraph test that we can use in court because he's deliberately coming in, like, drunk and high every single time. So at this point, Terry's stuck, and they're not going to fuddle more resources into it because, again, the statute of limitations has run out. So even if they get concrete evidence against him, they can't pursue it in court. It's a dead end. But later that year, this is how we bookend the story. 1996, Terry gets a call that she's been waiting for. Dave has been taken into custody for a separate crime where he held a hunting partner of his at gunpoint in the woods and then made him drive him through the woods for an unknown reason. So he's charged with, like, felony kidnapping, and he would face trial. Terry shows up to the trial. To her description... No. She shows up to the trial and sits right behind him in the courtroom. She, he has no idea that she's coming there. But after he's found guilty of his crime, he gets up to leave, turns around, and looks her dead in the eyes. And she said his face went ashen. She, she'll never really know for sure if he recognized her as the girl that he bludgeoned all those years ago. But in her eyes, without a doubt, she was like, that is the Klein Falls Axeman. Dave would go to federal prison where he is set to serve five years, which of course is not enough for the things that he most likely did, but it's something for Terry. She knows that the man who did this to her won't hurt anybody else. He's behind bars. And although he maintains his innocence to this day, Terry would go on to write books and she actually lobbies to change some of the laws and she is successful in doing this, the laws around the statute of limitations in Oregon. Avra never wanted to participate in this or know anything about the man who attacked them. And it's not enough. But for Terry, it is closure to the story. I really put you through it, girl. I really... (laughs) I just imagine the, like, the end. That, like... That needs to be, like, actually a, a written, like, thing because... I mean, chills. Like, first of all, I got to stop saying chills. <laughs> I get chills about everything. But like, truly, I mean, that would be like a moment. I like know. the last thing. First of all, I guarantee you he knew who she was. Oh. I'm sure even if he was a, first of all, thinking about how young he was at the time that he did it. And the fact that his parents were covering, you know, his ass. I'm sure that there were newspaper clippings out. I'm sure the news was on. Absolutely going to say that. I'm sure that he knew exactly what those two girls looked like and followed it because of his guilt. And I'm. And I was also thinking, how many people could have been in that courtroom? Because his like 
I don't know, felony kidnapping thing. It's not a high profile case. She was probably like one of like a small handful of people in that courtroom. So to look at her and make sense of like, who is this person? Why are they at my trial? And then it clicks and his face just loses color. She was, she, the way she wrote about this, I'm going to have to send you the book. Oh God, I'm already forgetting the title of it. I'm going to look it up. Stall for me for a second. (laughs) Terry. Oh my gosh. Terry Jen's book. What is it? What is it? Terry. It's called Strange paradise Mm. a strange piece of paradise I believe is is the book she wrote on this but the way she described that experience of looking him dead in the eye and just knowing like you're she's facing her attacker completely shifted the whole thing and like how she viewed it it like reclaimed a bit of ownership over the story because she did it she found his face the thing that he held over her for like almost two decades. It's insane. I think it's also really (laughs) not to get so, you know, emotionally trying to draw on and make parallels with everything, but I think it's really amazing to point out that like she had something so horrific happen and the anger was starting to fester. And instead of doing what he had done with his anger and like charging it, in a terrible direction like she really like followed she saw her anger through to the point of like redemption and taking yeah. like you're saying like owning ownership again like she really did that there's <laughs> such a great quote that oprah has i don't i think you just made me think of it where because oprah's done series where she um interviews like murderers and they always it's odd because a lot of them get her to try to empathize with them and they like tell a horrible story about what happened in their childhood. And Oprah has had some horrible things happen in her childhood. I, yeah. And she had this great quote that landed so well because she's Oprah and her quotes land well. And she was like, you and I are not the same. We are different because mm. we both may have pain. But what you chose to do with your pain and what I chose to do with mine are very different. And I was like levitating, just like ascending from my couch i think what did you just make me think of oh you made me think of harry potter (laughs) when he's like when um he's like i have something that you'll never have friendship love wait you like you why do you sound a little bit like daniel radcliffe (laughs) maybe because i've watched those movies so many times harry not you not hermione Oh wait, no, no, no. I, 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 yeah, I messed up the line. It's like not me, not me, not Hermione, <laughs> you, <laughs> you. I was. It's oh god. Speaking of Harry Potter, Bryce was just saying he's like, I really because he's gonna come with us to the Magic House. He's like, I hope it's like Hogwarts, and I'm like, it's probably the closest thing on Earth that you're gonna get to Hogwarts <laughs> for real. Are you serious? No, not in terms of like how it looks, but as far as like being in a castle, um, it has this mysterious, spooky schnazzy vibe and also legitimate magic going on around you at all times this is probably hogwarts it's hogwarts with cocktails and maybe a 60 dollar feast in a prime rib i'm getting the filet mignon the filet <laughs> mignon the, great- <laughs> the fillet mignon <laughs> i love whenever we have filet mignon at home i love calling it we're having filet mignon filet mignon filet mignon <laughs> oh god thank you for giving me a little release oh. isn't that story nuts that should be a movie that story is it yeah i i want that to be 
something. What if we end up becoming like, you know how Amy Poehler has, um, oh wait, sorry. I think Amy Poehler does this. No, it's Reese Witherspoon. Sorry. Reese Witherspoon is so smart because she has a book club, you know, about the Reese Witherspoon book club. Mm-hmm. And she has of a course. production company. Every like major book that like they do in this national book club that has like great reception from all the members of Reese Witherspoon's book club, she funnels money from her production company to make like an adaptation, like a movie or a television show of it. And I'm like, oh, that's so genius because there's like a built-in audience who already knows the story and like has read the books. So of course they want to see an adaptation of that. I was like, some of the cases on here that like don't really get talked about very often one day we should make them into adaptations so people know that story. Because nobody talks about the yeah. Klein Falls axe, man. Nobody talks about this. And it's a real, I guess some of the, some of the, for sure, some of the stuff that Reese produces is based on a real story, based on a true story. Some of it, yeah. But. True events. Yeah, I mean, these, yeah. But there could be, yeah, a whole production company that just options completely true crime stories and especially like like that survival stories like like niche ones yeah i mean this is a truly truly miraculous survival story to get axed most people don't get to tell that tale that's insane Mm -mm. creepers thank you for joining us for the ride i i'm gonna wrap us up because i know we are sweating but Stu, thank you for listening to that story (laughs) the klein falls axe man oh thank you this is our Thank you so much. That was great. Yeah, this, I mean, this is our last hurrah before episode 50, our season finale. So Creepers, make sure that you tune in. We're going to be back next week. And then before you know it, Stu, we're going to be in Vegas, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. And we'll obviously give Creepers an update on on that, I'm sure. We're going to have a lot to talk about At some after point. Vegas. <laughs> yeah. So until then, for now, we will say goodbye and good luck. Good luck.